Our Father, there are times when uh, we identify with the psalmist in Psalm 142, who said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. And there are times as we walk through life, when we get, uh, the only word is overwhelmed. Uh, We thank you that we are not always overwhelmed, but there are times when we are. It seems like uh, we get hit from every direction, and the news that keeps coming is not good news, it's just the opposite. And we're like that guy that used to be on that old Ed Sullivan show who was spinning those plates. And he had about 10 or 12 or 15 of them going, and he was trying to keep them all going. He'd get down to the end, and by the time he got to the end, the, uh, on the other end, they were wobbling, about ready to fall off. And, well, that's when we get overwhelmed. When we get overwhelmed, we lose perspective. And when we get overwhelmed, we can't see our way out. And when we get overwhelmed, we don't know what to do next because we're just overwhelmed. Um, And undoubtedly, we've got some guys here tonight that are overwhelmed with responsibility and pressure and stuff uh, that's on their plate. Uh, The psalmist knew about that. But even when his spirit was overwhelmed, you knew his path. We are grateful that you are a God who never gets overwhelmed. We, We are grateful, Lord, that as we get tired and fatigued and we get overwhelmed, you never get tired. You've never lost an ounce of energy, ever. You, you never nod off. You never lose interest. Your eye is always upon us. And we thank you for your, we thank you for your providential care. We, we thank you for your um, focused attention on us. We are never out of your mind. What a great God you are. And when we ponder uh, our situation and when we try to figure how we're going to manage and how we're going to work this out, and we, we try to control this and that, and then things get delayed and this gets over here, and it, it, just, it just drives us nuts. But at the same time, you're governing our lives. You know our path. You're going to get us to where you want us to be. You control every individual involved. You control every circumstance. And that's great to think about. It just enables us to relax and uh, decompress. It is good to be still and know that you are God. There are burdens in this life that we absolutely just cannot carry. They're too heavy. And in fact, if we try to carry them, they'll crush us. So tonight, we lay those burdens down at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he has promised to never leave us, never forsake us. And you've told us to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. So tonight, as we look at David, encourage us by how you worked in his life, because you're the same God. And what you did for him, you'll do for us. We believe that. We count on it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Montana rancher turned 70. It's a big deal. And he decided he was going to do something for his 70th birthday that he had never done before, this crazy. He decided he was going to buy himself a birthday present. Went down to Billings. And uh, he bought a brand new Corvette. He had always wanted the Corvette. And he decided if I'm going to get one, I better get it now. 
So he buys his brand new Corvette, puts the top down, gets on the interstate, starts heading back to his ranch. And he's just loving this thing, just cruising down the interstate, enjoying life, going about 80. <sighs> life was good. Until he looked in the rearview mirror and he sees a Montana state trooper with his lights on. And something just came over him. <laughs> and he hit the accelerator. And in about three seconds, he's humming at 120. And this Montana state trooper is being left in the dust. And he's just laughing to himself. And then suddenly he comes to his senses and says, what the heck am I doing? What the heck? And so he pulls over. And he's waiting for the trooper to get out. And you know how they take a minute. Trooper walks up to him and he says, uh, sir, uh, I get off my shift in 30 minutes. I've been looking forward all day to going home. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I've been out on this interstate for 30 years now, and if you can give me an excuse for your speeding that I've never heard in 30 years, I'll let you go. And the rancher looked at him and paused and said, three years ago, my wife ran off with a Montana state trooper. I thought you were bringing her back. Trooper said, have a nice day, sir. <laughs> I've been holding on to that story for six months. I really have. I, I've been holding on to that sucker for six months. And it fit tonight, and I'll tell you why. We're looking at David, and we're looking at David's life, and we are looking at David's life through the uh, lives of the other men in David's life, as you read his biography, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of biographical information, as you know, on David, one of the key figures in the Old Testament, one of the key figures in history. You go to, uh, you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem, um, you know where the place to stay in Jerusalem is? The King David Hotel. That's the place, man. And if you can't afford to stay there, go out on the patio and have iced tea and look over the old city. That's what I do. <laughs> but down four shekels and you get a nice tea and you enjoy the view. And they're watching you the whole time at the King David Hotel because it's Israel. But uh, that's where uh, heads of state stay. It's the King David Hotel. He's one, of, he's one of the icons of all of history. Uh, he was greatly used by God. There is a tremendous amount of biographical information in the scripture about David. But the way we want to look at his life is we want to look at his life through the other men that God brought along in his life. Some of the men were for him. Some of the men were against him. But as we said last week, all of these men were tools in the hands of God to make him the man that God wanted him to be. It was Thomas Watson. Uh, we looked at his quote last week where he said, there are many tools in God's tool chest. There, there are some tools that... Um, uh, there are some tools, uh, there, there, there's, there's rough sandpaper. Uh, there, are, uh, there are saws, there are hammers. There are some people that come into your life and they will just hammer you. There are other people in your life, they will do everything that they can do to cut you down behind your back. They're the saws of life. Um, however, there are other people and they are the ones who lift you up. They are the hydraulic jacks in God's shop. They lift you up. They encourage you. Uh, and God uses all of them to turn us into the men that he wants us to be. We started last week by looking at uh, Samuel and by looking at Saul. And I want to finish with Saul tonight because Saul played a key role in the life of David early on and in the formation of David's life, and it wasn't a good one. Every time David looked in the rearview mirror, 
Saul was on his tail with the lights on. Why was that? Because Saul hated David. Saul had a vendetta, a vendetta against David. Saul had become irrational and lost his mind over David. And that's why, well, let's turn to Psalm 57. You know, half of the Psalms, approximately, there's 150 of them, roughly half of them were written by David. And when you take the, the accounts in the Old Testament, like we're going to be in um, 1 Samuel tonight, uh, when you take those accounts that we have on David's life, and, and then sometimes you can parallel them with the Psalms that he wrote, and we find him in, in Psalm 57 in a very interesting place. Uh, if you look at Psalm 57, in the introduction, just before verse 1, it tells us where he was. He's writing this psalm, and it's a particular type of psalm. Um, it is a mictum of David, and, that's, and, and, and there's some debate over what that means, but it's a type of psalm. It has a, a kind of a, a lyrical idea to it, this particular psalm. It's a style of psalm. But the point is this. He wrote this psalm, it says, when he fled from Saul in the cave. This psalm was written in one of the worst times of David's life. He was, he was, he was in incredible danger. Uh, Saul pursued David relentlessly and attempted to hunt him down for close to 10 years. Did everything he could do to destroy David. I mean, to literally take him out. And so, for 10 years of his life, in the early years, David was on the run. He was a fugitive. Uh, and his enemy was the most powerful man in all of Israel who hated his guts. Uh, in Psalm 57, you get a sense of the pressure that David was under as he was in this cave. He says, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. Some translations say, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. When something is repeated twice in the Psalms, it's for emphasis. It's a, it's a cry from the gut. You know, we read these psalms, we're sitting here and we got air conditioning and nice lighting and everything's good and you just had dinner or whatever. You just had a few beers in the parking lot, these guys here in the middle, uh, who are already passed out. Um, we're fine here. And we just, we open our Bibles and we say, oh, be gracious to me, oh God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. Okay, good. Let me tell you something, this guy was in trouble. This guy is hiding out in a cave and Saul has got his 3,000 soldiers combing those foothills looking for him. And it's the kind of thing where, where David could have burrowed into one of those small little caves, and he's got soldiers coming within 10 feet of him. And he's asking God to save his life. He's asking God to, to divert their eyes and to limit their hearing and to not let them see what is right before him. I mean, he's, that, that's how desperate he was. It's absolutely how desperate he was. Be merciful, O oh God, to me. Be merciful. Sometimes when you are in the worst crunches of your life, when you are in the worst place of your life, sometimes you're there because your enemies are against you. It might be where you work. There is someone who is on your case, and they won't go away, and you're under their authority. And they've got a vendetta for you, and they ride you, and they talk about you behind your back. And you're doing all you can do to stay faithful, but you're also hoping you can find another place of employment. You'll never get a reference from them. In fact, if anyone calls them, they will do whatever they can do to destroy you. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, sometimes we're in straits. Sometimes we're in desperate straits. Sometimes we're in dangerous straits, not because of somebody else, but because of what we've done. We screwed up. It's our own fault. So when that happens, what do you do? Well, you run to Christ. You know, it's interesting. We looked at Saul last week, and we'll, we'll look over some of those same scriptures just briefly. 
you know what Saul's problem was? Did he fall short? Did he sin? Yeah. Was he rebellious? You know what his problem was? He would never repent. He would never repent from the gut, from the heart, and he would never yield and submit to God. He wouldn't do it. He just flat out wouldn't do it. And he wasn't forgiven. But when, no matter how big of a mess you've made, if you've broken every, every egg in your life and every egg in every person's life in your family, and you've scrambled, you say, oh my gosh, how can... You just run to Christ. He's a great Savior. You just run to Him. He doesn't turn off the spigot. He doesn't despise a broken and contrite spirit. If you're broken, if you're remorseful from your gut, there's forgiveness. And He'll begin to put you back together. He won't turn you away. But Saul wouldn't do it. So even if it's of your own making, Christ is a great Savior. David is asking God to be... Listen, there are some times, if you can't think of anything else, just say, Lord, be merciful. Oh, God, be merciful. Be gracious. Be gracious. I need your loving kindness. I need your loving kindness. I am in a jam, and I'm not going to make it if you don't come through for me. That's where David is here. Watch what he says. For my soul takes refuge in you. He's, he's taking refuge in some little burrowed-out cave, but ultimately he says, Lord, I take refuge in you. And, the shadow, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. These guys were playing hardball. They would, they would slit his throat. And then in the midst of this, this tremendous time of pressure where he's overwhelmed and his life is on the line, he says this. He speaks truth to himself. See, this is the thing. When you get in these situations, when, when the pressure is about to crush you and you are pressed in from all sides... Note what he says. He says, I will cry to God Most High. Now that, when he says, I will cry, that's a, that's a plea of desperation. It's not a calm prayer. It, 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 it's just desperation. It, it is emotional. Yeah, I mean, I'm going down for the count here. Jesus, help me. I remember my dad, I remember him telling me a story when I was a little kid that he was working the night shift, I think at Richfield Oil. When we lived in Bakersfield, California, I was just a little kid, and you'd go up by Bakersfield College. There was this, there was this bluff. It was real high, and the, they were building a college up there. But you'd come down, and there was this oil refinery. And, it, and at night, I remember seeing it as a kid. It just lit up, and there was nothing out there. And there was a small little two-lane road that was very treacherous going down this bluff. It was probably, you know, at the height of it, it was probably seven, eight hundred feet, and. Uh, and my dad had been working graveyard shift, and he was driving back, and he fell asleep on that little two-lane road, and they didn't have rails the whole side. And he looked up. He just came to, and there was a truck coming this way, and there was no guardrail. And I remember my dad saying, I just said, Jesus, but not like that. Jesus! And to this day, my dad doesn't know how he made it. He should have gone over the edge, but he didn't. I, I remember that story from when I was five years old. Uh, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's just not for salvation. That is for salvation. But there will be times in your life you just call on him. You just call out to him. Um, I will cry to God most high. That's my point. But that's the kind of prayer. Jesus, help me. That's all you can say. I will cry to God most high. Now watch this. To God who accomplishes all things for me. That, that's fascinating. I have this book, and I pulled it out here before, called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. Um, I've gone through it a few times, you can see. Uh, I love this book. Do you know that this book is all about... The first two verses of Psalm 57 is this book, the entire book. It's based on this section, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me, he will send from heaven and save me. And what he does is, he takes that phrase, to God who accomplishes all things for me, and he just works it in this book. He shows you, here's how God works for you. Here's how God accomplishes all things for you. 
And he shows that, that in the text, some translators would translate this, I will cry to God most high, to God who is the, watch this, who is the transactor of all my affairs. From the womb to the tomb. He's in charge of everything in my life. Good, bad, uh, victory, defeat, uh, good friends, enemies, promotions, layoffs, um, buying a new Corvette, falling asleep on a two-lane road and about dying. He's, uh, uh, Psalm 68 says, to the Lord belongs escapes from death. Have you ever escaped from death? Something happened and you should be dead and you're not? Why are you not dead? To the Lord belongs escapes from death. Because he governs your life. He is the transactor of all of your affairs, all of the details of your life. And David reminds himself of that as he's burrowed in in this care with 3,000 soldiers trying to find him and slit his throat. <laughs> See, when you're in the worst place in the worst of times, what do you do? You have to live off the promises of God. You've got nothing else. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. Yes, he will. Now here's a question for you. Why was David in the cave? He was in the cave because Saul hated his guts. Why did Saul hate his guts? Uh, now, last week, I had six points. I covered five. Tonight, I have the sixth. Turn with me, if you would, back to 1 Samuel. And go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. See, the question is, why was David in this cave? And he was hiding out. Every day, he was looking for a new hiding place. He could never sleep in the same place twice. Why was that? Because Saul hated his guts. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, there is... It's 1 Samuel chapter 10. It's 1 Samuel chapter 10... Verse 8. We touched on this last week. So we're going to ask the question, why was it that David was on the run from Saul? Uh, it's because of this. David and Saul are examples of the two kinds of leadership, the two kinds of leaders that you always see. Um, there is what you call an authentic leader, and there is what you would call a synthetic leader. And again, we touched on this just briefly. A authentic leader in the scriptures. Uh, in the scriptures, leadership is always a matter of the heart. Christianity is always an issue of the heart. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It was said of David later in his life that he was a man after God's own heart. Um, I was reading this week. I haven't forgotten 1 Samuel 10, but flip over to uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians. Yeah, you ever you ever you ever reading the scriptures and all of a sudden you see a verse and you swear you'd never seen that verse before? That happened to me this week. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse um, ah, verse 12. Paul says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer. Watch this. You will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Christianity is a matter of the heart. We have authentic leaders. We have synthetic leaders. We have authentic Christians. We have synthetic Christians. We have true believers. We have counterfeit believers. We have true teachers. We have false teachers. We are told that false teachers are going to come. False prophets are going to come among you. And they deceive. Why do they deceive? Because they look like the real thing. 
They say the right thing. They dress the right way. They have the right mannerisms. They use the right vocabulary, the right phrases. But they don't have a heart for God. Any kind of leader, even apart from Christianity, in in the corporate world, you have authentic leaders and you have um, counterfeit leaders. Uh, leadership is always a, it's always an issue of the heart. Christianity is always an issue of the heart. But there are some who want to give the appearance without the heart. There are some who care about uh, impression rather than substance. That's the counterfeit leader. Saul is the picture of the counterfeit leader. He didn't have a heart for God. He had the externals, but he didn't have the internals. Uh, counterfeit leaders, synthetic leaders, I'm using those terms interchangeably, synthetic leaders uh, put a lot of emphasis on titles. Synthetic leaders put a lot of emphasis on degrees. Years ago, almost 20 years ago, I was at a luncheon in Dallas. We had just moved here. And, you know, met some guys, and a guy hands me a business card. And I didn't know him from Adam. I still don't know him from Adam. But what I remember is this card. The single most impressive business card I've ever seen in my life. This guy, it had his name, and then it said, uh, CEO, CFO, managing partner, Card said over. You go on the other side. It said B A M A M A S B D M N D D P H D. Now I exaggerate with the over part. But he had more crammed into the one side of that card. He had all of his degrees, and they may have been legitimately earned. For all I know, I, I mean, I, I don't have any reason to doubt that. He had them all listed, and he had a ton of them. He had titles coming out his ears. Single most impressive business card I've ever seen. Now, I want to say this to you. Titles don't make you a leader. Academic degrees don't make you a leader. The greatest definition of leadership I've ever heard came from Howard Hendricks, and Howard Hendricks said, a leader is someone who leads. That's it. When I did my dissertation at Dallas Seminary on leadership, I came up with 160 different published definitions of a leader. And they were all good. But the best one of the lot was from Howard Hendricks. A leader is someone who leads. Well, I'm a CEO. Great. Pin a rose on your nose. You're a CEO. That doesn't mean you're a leader. Well, I've got the title. Yeah, but you're not a leader unless you lead. Well, I went to Harvard, I went to Duke, I went to Stanford, I went to... So? I've seen leaders that didn't get out of high school, but they know how to lead men. Well, I went to this school, and this... Good, good, and you know, some guys who do that are great leaders, but a bunch of them aren't. Just because you went to those schools, just because you can take an SAT exam and not freak out, just because you can recall facts, that doesn't make you a leader. You just got a steel trap mind that God gave you. Great, but that doesn't make you a leader in crisis when there's a fire and the whole world's falling apart. And, uh, hey, we're not looking at your SAT scores. We want to know if you can lead. Am I making any sense? The world says you're a leader if you have the externals. That's not what God says. God looks on the heart. And you have Christians. They know all the hymns. They know all the verses. They even got scripture memorized. They've been in church since they were this high. And man, they look dang good on Sunday. But you don't want to do business with them on Thursday. Because they will screw you 14 different ways. And then say, see you Sunday at worship. You know what I'm talking about. You've run into these suckers. And then they'll say, it's just business. It's business. No, it's character. And you're, by the way, you're going to give an account to Christ. Anyway. Don't hear that too often in here, do we? But you're welcome. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 10. Uh, I, I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm asking the question, why was David in the cave? I want to show this to you. I want to show you what happened. Um, Right out of the blocks, Saul is anointed as the first king. And he does okay at the beginning, but then he starts showing his true colors. 
he starts showing his heart. Okay? Um, 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. Samuel says, You shall go down before me in Gilgal, and behold, I will come down and offer you uh, to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You should wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened, he's talking to Saul. Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. A lot of guys say, now when you read that, say, oh, that's, God changed his heart. Don't, don't uh, Warren Wiersbe says, don't equate that with New Testament regeneration of a new heart. What God changed was this guy had been on his father's farm overseeing the donkeys. He had no spiritual interest. He didn't even know who Samuel was, who was the most famous spiritual leader in all of Israel. He didn't even know who he was. Never heard the guy. Never interacted with him. But he looked like a leader. He was big, as we saw last week. He was the biggest guy in Israel. He was the strongest guy, best-looking guy. He was out of Hollywood casting. And it says, oh, what the Lord changed his heart. What the Lord did was God changed his heart from a desire for the farm and gave him a desire, quite frankly, for politics. Here's the point I missed last week. The point is this. Saul had a heart for the position, but he never had a heart for the Lord. What do you mean he had a heart for the position? He loved the power of being king. He loved the prestige of being king. He loved the preferential treatment of being king. But he didn't love the king of kings. He was not under the authority. He wouldn't bow to the king of kings. So what does Saul say? Saul, uh, uh, Samuel couldn't make it more clear. Go to Gilgal, wait for me for seven days. So what happens? You get to verse 13, verse 8. Now he waited seven days. He's waiting for Samuel. He waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And he's under great pressure because the Philistines are surrounding him, and he's under trouble. He's under crisis. See, once again, it's crisis that proves a leader. They're not looking at his degrees from, you know, University of Jerusalem and all this stuff. They're looking at, you know, you got to lead, man. So what does he do under pressure? He says, oh, my gosh, all these Philistines are around us. Uh, Samuel hasn't come, and the people were scattering. Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he, offered the bring, and he offered the burnt offering. You don't do that. You don't do it. Under pressure, was he in submission to the king? No, he rebelled against the king. Because he was synthetic to begin with. He never had a heart for the king. He had a heart for the position. He wanted the power. He wanted the prestige. But he didn't have a heart for God. So then when Samuel comes to him, and, and we looked at this last week, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And he begins to immediately make excuses. He says in verse 12, well, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Now the Lord, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now your kingdom shall not endure. Go over to, uh, he didn't have a heart for God. Then go to 1 Samuel uh, 15. This was the final straw. And these events happened pretty quickly in 1 Samuel. Then Samuel said to Saul, he said, why are we looking at this guy? We forgot David in the cave. We haven't forgot David in the cave. I'm going to show you why David was in the cave. And I'm going to show you why you were in the cave. And if you're not in the cave today, it's because you've been there and God just got you out, or you're enjoying a respite, but guess what? You're going back in before long. And once again, I'm just here to encourage you. He said, well, that's not real encouraging. It may not be encouraging, but it's the truth. Because the normal Christian life is suffering. The normal Christian life is hardship. The normal Christian life is difficulty. Sorry to tell you that, but it's the truth. Samuel Chadwick was a uh, Methodist pastor of the last century. He said this, Nothing makes for a preacher's effectiveness more than a true conception of his calling. A preacher is a messenger. That which he speaks is not his own. He is not at liberty to criticize, modify, or tamper with that which is entrusted to him. Neither has he any right to withhold it from any person by, to whom it is sent. But he is neither a postman nor a phonograph. You young guys, you'll have to Google phonograph. There used to be these round things and these disc 
not a CD, a big black disc, and there are three speeds, 33 and a third, 45, and those were the little stubby, when you put a little thing, in, in, look it up. <laughs> and then there was 78. You say, well, it's a CD. No, no, it was a record, it was a disc, it was scratchy. But they were great, and they're coming back. <laughs> they are coming back, did you know that? That's another issue, okay. A preacher is neither a postman nor a phonograph. He delivers an open message which he has received from God for men. His first business is to wait for his message, and his next is to see that it is faithfully delivered. So we got guys on TV, and we got guys with megachurches, and you know what? They won't tell you the truth. God always wants you, God always wants you healthy. God always wants you rich. That is a crock. Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the word of God. Sorry to tell you. That's why I say, if you were in a cave and you came out, thank the Lord. That's wonderful. Guess what? Before long, you'll be in another cave. Why? Because through many tribulations. Not one cave. Oh, I went through my one cave. Oh, no, that's, that's the first of many. It's a series. It's a multi-volume uh, uh, series. But see, what happens, you go through a cave and, and, and you say, oh my gosh, Lord, you got to get me out, and the Lord delivers you and it builds your faith. And what it does is, and he gives you some time off, and then what happens, you go into another cave. Oh, and then you think, oh, I'll never get out of this, and then you know what happens, you get out of it and God delivers you. And all the time, you know what he's doing? He's building your faith, and he's building your spiritual muscle. That's how you get strong, through suffering. How do you get strong? Through suffering. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You get strong by going through tough stuff. If you've got an easy life, if you're... Uh, if you've got a life like all these insurance companies in their retirement uh, commercial show, you're a wuss, spiritually. You're 80, you look like you're 22. Your, your wife looks like she's 19. You've always eaten right. All your investment plans have turned out perfectly. Your kids do exactly what you wanted them to do. And you've got three homes and you take turns. And I read about a guy in the Wall Street Journal who has three homes and they're identical. His offices are identical. The computers, the chair, the walls, everything's the same because he likes to live. He likes to live at 70 degrees. I'm dead serious. I just read this in the Wall Street Journal. And he's got a lot of money and he lives wherever he, he goes. If it's 70 degrees, he's got a home in... Uh, Florida, he's got one in New York, and he's got one somewhere else. And it depends on the weather. He likes 70 degrees. The problem is the sucker's 86 years old, and he's not going to be here long. Right? Now, there's a place called heaven, and we're going there, but we're not there yet. So we're going to suffer. So you're going to find yourself in a cave. All right? Now, hold on. Stay with me. And I'm doing something this week I haven't done last week. I'm watching the clock. Okay? All right, watch this. Verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now listen, therefore, to the words of the Lord. Thus, now here's the next instruction to Saul. Thus says, to, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way which he was coming up from Egypt. Now watch this. And this, may, this is harsh, and I don't have time to go into it and explain it and you know, because it raises some hard questions. And I'm not going to deal with the hard questions because I don't have time. I just want you to note the command. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put together both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You may not like it, but it's clear. And don't forget Psalm 1968, which says the Lord is good and does good. And that doesn't mean that every one of those infants went to hell. It doesn't mean that because God's a God of grace. That's as far as I'm going on this. I just want you to see the command was crystal clear. And then note verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. In other words, they kept the good stuff. Once again, he violates the command of the king of kings. And then Samuel shows up in verse 13. And Saul says to him, Oh, blessed are you of the Lord, Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. No, you haven't. You're a liar. 
He's lying, in his t- he's lying through his teeth to the prophet of God. Oh, blessed be you. You see the church stuff? Oh, praise God. John 3, 16. Amazing grace, how sweet is that? What can wash away my sin? This sucker knows all the lingo. But he's lying through his teeth because he's counterfeit, he's synthetic. And oh, I love Samuel. Look at Samuel. He cuts right through the dunghill. Samuel says in verse 14, uh, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And then you read through the text, it's excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. Why? Because he's counterfeit. Even today in our culture, when you see a counterfeit leader, when you see a synthetic leader, uh, by the way, leaders were all screwed up. We, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sometimes we'll see a situation where a leader will fall into sin. And when a leader falls into sin, you're going to find out his heart. Uh, there is such a thing as synthetic repentance. When, when you see a guy who falls into sin and falls into immorality, and then he starts... Guys who are synthetic, here's what they do. They excuse sin. They rationalize sin. They defend sin. They act like it's not a big deal. That's exactly what he did here. Okay. So what happens in 15 is that Saul loses the kingdom. Um, Verse 26, if you're still with me. In verse 25, Saul says, Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have, been re- for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Now you may say, God wouldn't forgive him? No, the fact of the matter is, Samuel knew his heart, and in his heart he really wasn't repentant. He was saying the words, but they weren't in his heart. He was saying the right things, but there was no heart. Samuel said to him, verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then what happens in the next chapter? A new king is going to be anointed. Who's the new king? David. David is, uh, what's David doing? Oh, he's at Stanford getting his Ph.D., No, David is out in the fields up to his knees in sheep crud, taking care of his dad's sheep. His dad brings in all the brothers because Samuel says, bring in your son because the Lord said, I'm going to anoint one of those boys. And if you read the text, he's looking at some of David's brothers and some of them are studs. You know, I mean, these guys work out, they're in shape, they look like leaders, but none of them are the right. Are these all your boys? Well, no, David's out with the sheep. Bring him in here. 13 of 16. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Look at 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. This was big. So what happened when, when David was anointed? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. What happened at the same moment? The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit was given to him and terrorized him. Now we're finding out why David's going to be in a cave for 10 years. Uh, note if you would, uh, you go to the next chapter, for Samuel 17, story of Goliath. You know all about the Goliath story. Who should have been fighting Goliath? Who was the biggest guy of the Philistines? Who was the biggest guy of, the, of Israel? Saul. Was Saul out there taking him on? No. But David shows up. David says, I'll take that sucker on. Saul, uh, David was not a big guy. He's a little guy. But he says, hey, God delivered me from the bear. God delivered me from the lion. He did what? You see, as we said last week, David was tested in private. When it was just him and the sheep and the Lord, and a bear comes, he took the sucker on and God delivered him. When the lion came, a lion came. I'd say, help yourself, man. What do you want? He fought a lion. Is there a crowd? Is it on ESPN? Is everybody texting about him and raving about him on Facebook? No, nobody knew about it. 
But see, what God did was God built his faith through the adversity. And God built muscle. And so he shows up, and here's this big sucker, this big gala. He said, I'll take that sucker in the name of the Lord. And he did. Then you look at verse 18, and you look at verse 6, and now you start seeing what's happening. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, watch this, here's the new number one song in Israel this week. Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Now we got a problem. Don't we? Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. But to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Watch the next verse. David, uh, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Look at verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Look at verse 14. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Look at 15. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and he came in before them. Look at verse 29 of chapter 18. Saul's daughter loved David. 29 says, Then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then go to 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. You're starting to pick up now why David's in the cave, aren't you? 1 Samuel 23, look at 14. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. Watch this. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. For ten years. He pursued David, and David was on the run. Let me tell you what's happened here. Let me explain all that we've read. The reason David's in the cave in Psalm 57, hiding out from Saul and his 3,000 men, is because of this. David was an authentic leader. Saul was a synthetic leader. And here's what happens. <laughs> when you've got a synthetic counterfeit leader, and an authentic leader shows up, and this happens, this happens in churches, this happens in business, this can happen in any realm of life, when you've got a synthetic counterfeit leader and an authentic leader shows up who has a heart for leadership, watch what happens. The synthetic leader now gets threatened by the authenticity of the authentic leader. The authentic leader, his character, is going to bring to light the sham of character that is in the synthetic leader's life. So, whenever an authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader gets threatened, and now, and now, the thrust of the activity of the synthetic leader is to now destroy the authentic leader. And it happens all the time. Does it not? I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen churches put guys on boards because they got this degree and this degree and they've got this business and this business and they give money and, oh, the guy's a big player, he's a big player. And you know what the guy is? The guy's a sham. Now, there's some guys, God's blessed them, and you know what? They have a heart for God and they don't love money, they love Christ. You got the good and the bad and everything. But if you just put a guy on because of his externals, that's why you got the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 for an elder. They're character requirements. Look at the guy's heart. Look at the guy's life. Look at his substance. Check him out. Find out if anyone's got a complaint against the guy. This guy did you wrong in business. This guy did this. He screwed you on this deal. He's not an elder. But just because the sucker looks good, don't put him in. Because he doesn't have a heart for God. He'll be like Saul. He's got a heart for the position. He wants the power. He wants the honor. But he doesn't have a heart for God. So therefore, he won't submit. And when you've got elders that are trying to seek the mind of Christ, you're always going to have a problem because he's not interested in the mind of Christ. Am I making any sense? You know I am. 
Um, maybe the best business book I've ever read, I've read two, <laughs> is Good to Great. Uh, it's not a Christian book. But what's interesting, if you know anything about this book, it's, it's been a bestseller. When did he write this thing? 2001. If I'm not mistaken, it's still on the New York Times top 25. Trin's book. What did he do? Collins took, he did a study with a bunch of people. They did a study of companies that were good and turned into great. And then he breaks it down as they studied these companies, and they broke it down. What are the characteristics of these companies? And, they, and you know what's interesting to me? As I read this book, every one of the principles they found in these companies that had turned around, as I recall, every principle that had been, that had been utilized and put in place was a biblical principle even though the people weren't Christians. But they fell upon a biblical principle, and the first principle is what he calls level five leadership. Get the right leader. And then when you read his description of a leader, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about a biblical leader. And the first trait he talks about is humility. And he tells a story in here about, he tells all these stories about these guys who flew under the radar, but they were great leaders. They were great CEOs. And nobody knew who they were. And he tells this one story in here about a guy who at one point turned around Gillette and they were having all kinds of problems like 20 years ago. And this guy just, you know, he, he just, he, you know what motivated this guy? Was not what was best for him, but was what best for the, what's best for the organization. And he tells the story of this guy. And the guy made some decisions he thought were best for the organization. They weren't popular. People hated his guts. And then it started to turn around. And before you know it, he's getting accolades and he's not real comfortable. And then one day he wakes up and there's a story in, uh, I think, the Wall Street Journal and he's on a front page and there's a caricature of him that makes him look like Conan the Barbarian. And the guy read it, went into his office, had a heart attack and died. Because the last thing he wanted was the limelight. He couldn't take it. He didn't want it. He despised it. He wasn't looking for that. Tells another story of a guy that was involved in a public agency that has now gotten a lot of heat in the last 10 years, but this was way before that. And the guy had a bonus coming of, uh, it was Fannie Mae in the 90s. This guy had a legitimate bonus coming of $5 million for all these years, and you know what he said? He said, I don't want to take it. You do that and help out low-income people. Was it broadcast? No, nobody knew about it. It's humility. Went in it for himself. These guys were servant leaders. And what Collins is doing, he didn't even realize it. Collins has been invited by churches all over the country. And my understanding was he was kind of shocked when churches started calling him. The reason they were calling him is he's teaching biblical principles. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. You're not in this for yourself, you're in it for others. This whole idea of authentic leaders and synthetic leaders fascinates me. Henry Cloud, here's another great business book. These are both darn good. Henry Cloud, who uh, is a Christian, is a counselor, does a lot with, uh, oh gosh, who wrote Boundaries? Townsend, John Townsend, who's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. These guys, Townsend and uh, Cloud, do a lot of stuff together. and. Uh, this book by Henry Cloud is basically a business book, but it's for business people. But what he's doing is he's introducing biblical truth, but he doesn't quote a lot of scripture because they wouldn't read it. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and what he says is he talks about uh, necessary endings. Uh, it's called the employees, businesses, and relationships that all of us have to give up in order to move forward. Sometimes you need a necessary ending. And he talks about several kinds of people that you meet in any organization. He talks about uh, traits of wise people. The wise person would be the authentic leader. Let me give them to you real quick, all right? The wise person, here are some traits of the wise. When you give them feedback, they listen, take it in, and adjust their behavior accordingly. Would that not be a wise person? Yeah. You ever had a leader that you could talk to? You can give them feedback and they actually listened and then they appreciated the insight? You know what the Bible says? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Okay? You're wise if you listen to good feedback. All right? 
Uh, when you give them feedback, they embrace it positive. They say things like, thanks for telling me that. Man, I didn't know I came across that way. That's an authentic leader. That's a wise man. Uh, they own their performance, problems, and issues and take responsibility for them without excuses or blame. Uh, here's another trait of wise men. Your relationship is strengthened as a result of giving them feedback. They thank you for it and see you as someone who cares enough about them to have a hard conversation. They don't resent you, they appreciate you. In other words, unlike, was Saul like this? No, Saul was a fool. Because Saul could not take valid criticism. He was threatened by criticism. Okay. So those are some traits of wise people. Then he talks about what he calls the fool. The fool would be the synthetic leader. He says the fool does the opposite of the wise person. The fool rejects the feedback, resists it, explains it away, and does nothing to adjust to meet its requirement. In short, watch this, the fool tries to adjust the truth so that he does not have to adjust to it. Now see, i got to ask myself the question, which am I? And where do you fit? Man, it's hard, it's hard sometimes to hear the truth. We've all got blind spots, we've all got weaknesses. Nobody likes criticism. Sometimes Mary will give me, and this will shock you, it certainly shocks me. Sometimes Mary will give me constructive criticism. I mean, I'm stunned. And the word I emphasize and the word I underline in constructive criticism, the word I underline is criticism. Now, what line, what word would she underline? Constructive. There's nobody more on my team in the world than Mary. She'd do anything for me. She'd die for me. Mary deals with a lot of health issues. Just, she does, that's her thorn in the flesh. You know what she does a lot when she's just, when she's biting them, and she's in bed, you know what she does? She prays. She prays for me. She prays for me all the time. She prays for our kids. And sometimes she feels like she can't do much, but I'm telling you, she's doing a heck of a lot. She's on my team. And sometimes she'll give me, hey, Steve, have you thought of this? And, what, are you, what are you talking about? Why? And you know, it's interesting because um, my first tendency is to get defensive. Why would I get defensive? She's... She's not against me. She's for me. She's not, trying to, she, she's not trying to do anything except help me and build me up and keep me from making a wrong step. She's just, she's just pointing something out because she cares. Am I making any sense? But see, i got to grow up. Oh, it's constructive criticism. It's criticism. No, it's constructive criticism. She loves me. Why the heck wouldn't I listen to her? Unless I'm an idiot. Unless I'm a fool. Here's some traits of foolish people. When given, food, when, when given feedback, they are defensive and immediately come back at you with a reason why it is not their fault. I had a conversation with a young man this week who was in his first experience of church leadership. And he has run into someone in leadership in a position they're not qualified to be in. And it has basically ruined a ministry and affected a lot of young people. And as I was talking to him this week, he was giving me, as he talked with this particular guy, and he told me the responses, I remembered this, because it's right down the line. When given feedback, they are defensive and immediately come back at you with a reason why it's not their fault. Another trait of a foolish person, when a mistake is pointed out, they externalize the mistake and they blame somebody else. That's what Saul did. Unlike the wise person with whom talking through issues strengthens your relationship, with the foolish person attempts to talk about problems, create conflict, alienation, or breach in the relationship. 
Another trait, sometimes they immediately shift the blame to you, and they shoot the messenger and make it somehow your fault. Any of this sound familiar? They often use minimization, trying in some way to convince you it's not that bad. This really isn't the problem you think it is. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, yeah, it is. They rationalize, they rationalize giving reasons why their performance was certainly understandable. And he goes on. We'll leave it there. It's okay. And they go on, and they go on, and they go on. Uh, they begin their response with, well, you, and they get off topic by pointing out your flaws. Their emotional stance towards getting corrected is opposite of that of the wise person who embraces the feedback and shows appreciation for your taking the effort to share it. Here, this is classic. This next one, they see themselves as a victim and they see the people who confront them as persecutors for pointing out the problem. Their world is divided into the good guys and the bad guys. The good, the good ones are the ones who agree with them and see them as good. The bad ones are the ones who don't think that they are perfect. Foolish people are not like wise people at all. In fact, they are exactly the opposite, desiring to not change and not listen. Which brings us to the strategic issue. Whereas talking about a problem to a responsible wise person helps, talking about a problem with a fool does not help at all. Now listen what he says. Therefore, further talking about problems with a fool is not the answer. So, stop talking. Now listen to this. The necessary ending that you have to initiate with people caught in their own foolishness is to end the pattern. You cannot control them or get them to change. What you can do is to create an ending to the effects their refusal to take responsibility is having on you or others. By so doing, you have accomplished two things that nagging did not do. You have limited the effects of their behavior on you and others, thus quarantining their ownership disease from further infecting your life, the team or the mission, and you may have done the one thing that can influence them to change. Talking will not help, but doing something that causes them to feel the consequence of their behavior may be what finally turns them around. With the last sentence, with these kinds of people, the only time they get it is when it begins to cost them. Which reminds me of 1 Timothy. I want to show you. See, that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of interesting stuff. Let me show you how this works in Scripture, if I can find it. Give me just a second. Because I'm at zero, 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 one more time. First Timothy 1, verse 18. Paul is appealing to Timothy to be an authentic leader. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Watch this. Keeping faith, what's faith? Keeping faith. You keep faith by being in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So be a man of the Word. Don't just be a hearer, but be a doer of the Word. Keeping faith and a good conscience. If the Spirit of God convicts you, if sin is brought into your life, instead of resisting it, instead of denying it, you respond to the Spirit of God and repent, and you're cleansed from all unrighteousness. You want to keep a good conscience. Counterfeit synthetic leaders, counterfeit synthetic Christians don't have good consciences. They've been seared in their own consciences with a branding iron if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, stay with me. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Watch this. Which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Watch the necessary ending. Whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Do you see the necessary ending? Did he keep talking to them? Did he keep meeting with them? No. There's a point... They won't listen. So they've got to feel the effects of their decision-making process. Isn't that not interesting? Now, here's my takeaway from this. I know all kinds of people. I mean, I know a ton of them that I think are counterfeit leaders and fools. You know what concerns me? I may be one of them and don't know it. I don't know a counterfeit leader who thinks he's a counterfeit leader. Do you? 
So I'd pray with David, O Lord, search me and know my heart and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Let's pray. Father, we are all messed up. And we want to grow and we want to mature and we want to become better leaders. We don't do things perfectly. And some of us, Lord, for years have had wrong habits and wrong patterns and we have resisted truth and we have been liars and we have not been open to correction. But you have come into our hearts and you have changed our hearts and minds and Christ has done a work. And now, Lord, we have been born, but now we need to grow. So, Lord, I would pray for myself and I would pray for these guys. And I would pray that we might examine our hearts. I pray that we might talk to someone who is even close to us and say, hey, let me ask you something. Do you think I'm teachable or do you think I'm stubborn? It might be good for us to get some feedback. And then if we get the answer we don't want to hear, would you help us not to be defensive? Would you help us to grow from that? And would you help us to say, well, you know, I don't want to be this way. Would you forgive me if I've hurt you? And inevitably, I have hurt you with this. And I'd sure appreciate it if you'd pray for me. And if you see it, would you point it out to me? I'm trying to, I'm trying to grow in this area. Lord, you resist the proud. We don't want to be proud. But you give grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves tonight before the greatness of Jesus, our King. You put up with us, you love us, and you still bless us. Give us teachable hearts and spirits so that we can grow and become your men and trust you even in the caves because we know at the right moment you'll deliver us and save us and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.